So good morning. morning. I'm Joel, and it's so good to be with you this morning. For any of you joining us online, I greet you from Heart City Church. If you're actually joining us for the first time, you might find today's text surprising. You're about to hear one of the strangest parables Jesus ever taught. So I'm just going to tell you up front that Jesus' point here is really very simple. Jesus is saying, have an investment strategy today that pays off for tomorrow. Have an investment strategy for today that pays off for tomorrow, and he's speaking of eternity. And investing eternally does not come natural to any one of us. That's why Jesus gives a surprising source to illuminate us to our failings in this. He uses a surprising source to illuminate our failings to invest eternally. Uh, Let me... uh, give you an illustration to help us lean into Luke 16. One commentator tells about a wealthy Christian man, a church fellow who led his family in devotions every night. And on a particular evening, he prayed a very, very moving prayer that God would save the lost. He pleaded that God would save the folks of men all around him and in other nations, all these heathens who are lost and had never heard the gospel. And he went on to wax eloquently to pray for the missionaries that were seeking to reach these lost peoples. It was such an amazing, heartfelt prayer that after it ended, his boy said, Daddy, I really like it when you pray for world missions. And the father said, well, thank you, son. The souls of men and women, boys and girls, are of infinite value. And the boy said, yeah, but Dad, I was distracted half the time you were praying. The father said, Why were you distracted? And the boy answered, I kept thinking to myself, if I had your checkbook, I could answer half your prayers. Kids say the darndest things sometimes, don't they? God uses surprising sources to illuminate us to see our investment blind spots. So let's pray that God might open our eyes through his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you and we confess that we have many blind spots. We thank you that you've sent a Savior. We ask and pray that the the gospel might be made clear, that the preacher will go away, and that we'll find ourselves meeting with Jesus, and that he'll open our eyes to see new and marvelous things. We pray this in his name. Amen. I invite you at this time to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 16. It's found on your bulletins on page 5 if you want to use that. Luke chapter 16, we're going to read the first 13 verses. Now hear the word of our God from Luke chapter 16. He, speaking of Jesus, also said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do, since my master is taking away the management from me? I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I've decided what I will do, what to do, so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. 
he said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you to the true riches? If you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Last week, we preached the greatest parable Jesus ever taught, the prodigal son, though I think it's perhaps better named the two lost boys and the waiting father. It is a gospel masterpiece, revealing the Father God's love for lost sinners. And you flip the page to Luke 16, and what do you have here? (laughs) Jesus follows up the perfect parable with what appears to be the poorest parable. It's a story that, on the surface, doesn't even seem like something Jesus would come up with. Jesus tells a story praising a con man for getting one over on his old boss. We might (laughs) question the author's decision here. Luke I mean, imagine Theophilus scratching his head as he's the first to read this. Why would you follow up such a great story with this questionable one? This, my friends, requires us to take up the appropriate posture before God's inspired word, receiving it as what it is, God's word, and trusting through his spirit he will illuminate us to understand its meanings. But we also need to exercise our minds to think this through. By the way, we don't check our brains at the door. That's not what we do here. We're actually using our brains when we come to our Bibles. This is not blind faith. First thing I think we need to do is have in front of us, as we flip the page, the audience changes. In Luke 15, Jesus was addressing Pharisees, religious men who were in love with money, by the way. In fact, the very next verse that we're going to read next week, that's what's going to be said. The Pharisees were lovers of money. Jesus addressed them with a parable that actually exposed that love. Luke 15, the parable of the prodigal son. It turns out, actually, the obedient elder brother in the parable was just like the younger brother. Far from his father and in love with his stuff. Now in Luke 16, Jesus turns to address his disciples now about their attitudes regarding worldly possessions. Which is why he used a different illustration, because it's his disciples. Jesus is actually teaching us, when you're talking to an audience, you may need to use a different truth than you would with a different one. Or it's communicating truth in a different way, not a different truth, the same truth, but communicating in different ways. So let's take in Jesus' illustration here. He says to his disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. Now, this is one of those ancient stories that translates well into our day. We have a rich man who owns a lot of land, a lot of properties. 
and he's leasing these out to farmers to use. And he must own quite a few because he actually has to hire a manager to oversee all of the business, something like a CEO, to keep track of the financial aspects. And this fellow, let's call him Pete. I just decided to name this fellow Pete. Pete, he's done a poor job of managing. Someone tells on him, goes to the owner and says, he's wasting your possessions. Now, we don't know if this is deliberate mismanagement or not. Pete might just be bad at his job. And Pete gets a call to the boss's office for what is a very short meeting. Someone who has been called in to see the boss for a very short meeting, <laughs> I feel acutely, my wife's laughing, what Pete must have been feeling at this moment, that he gets the sack. You ever been fired for your work performance? The sinking feeling in your stomach? The realization that you're suddenly unemployed? And the desperation that comes to your mind. What am I going to do now? I remember this in the recession of 2008. This is exactly what's going on in Pete's brain as he walks out of this meeting. In verse 3, and the manager said to himself, what shall I do? Since my master is taking the management away from me, I am not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. Pete wasn't young enough or strong enough to do hard manual labor. Probably with a career hit like this, he can't apply for another job in management. Thinks about begging, decides, I'm not willing to do that. But then he has a eureka moment in verses 4 to 7. He realizes, wait a minute, I still got some time for some hustles. Nobody is aware that he's been fired except for him and his old boss. So listen to Pete's plans. I have decided what to do so that when I'm removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write down 80. Huh, this guy's pretty good. He is immediately proactive and he sets a plan in motion. He has a list of all the folks who are leasing lands from his old boss, and he schedules meetings with everyone. Now, we're only given two examples here, but this should be understood as to represent many other debtors. There's a line at the door. Pete first meets the old guy and says, hey, I'd like to discuss your bill, how much you owe. And the old guy pulls out his bill and says, uh, 100 measures. Pete says, well, I got a sweet deal for you today and today only. Tear that up. Write yourself a new bill for only 50, and you sign it. And hurry up about it because I'm going to be wheeling and dealing all day. Can you imagine the smile on the oil guy's face? <laughs> this is my lucky day. Thank you, Pete. Turns up the old bill, writes a new one for only half amount. And don't think the oil guy or any of these other guys think that this is a shady deal. In ancient society, it was not uncommon for a landowner to say, you know what, I'm only expecting this amount of your crops, maybe because there's a bad harvest or, you know, there's not much rain. This was not uncommon for this to happen. It's fair to assume also that the landowner had a reputation as being a very gracious man and that this reputation means something to him. In fact, Sneaky Pete is counting on that fact. He is banking on it, that the master is not going to go out and undo everything he's doing right now. In fact, Pete is, I think he's actually really clever because notice none of his fingerprints are on any of the paperwork. He has everyone else tear up their own bills and write new ones and sign it. He doesn't have any signature on any of his documents. So these deals are between the owner and the renters alone, not him. 
And think about it now. What are the owner's choices after this is all done? He can either, one, force his renters to reevaluate whether he's gracious by telling him he fired their hero Pete and that he was revoking their discounts. And so all that extra money that they were already probably are banking on was not going to be theirs, but it's going now into his bank account. Or his other option is to let the adjustment stand and his reputation as this really extra gracious guy is now cemented. And we see he chooses option number two. And I think he does it with a big smile on his face. Look at verse eight. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. Imagine the situation. Shortly after the firing happened, the oil guy comes up with his payment. He's coming with it early. He's got a big thank you for the discount. The owner looks at the bill. He's like, when did this get changed? And the oil guy says, oh, last Friday. Thank you so much for sending Pete to cut me a break. Guess what? My daughter's getting the braces that we've been needing to get for her. And the owner begins like, uh-oh. He begins to make the rounds, right? He finds all of his renters are really happy to see him today. Discounts all around. This is quite a wonderful time to be alive in this area. The renters are all smiles because they got their debts dropped significantly. The owner can't help but smile as happy renters are singing for he's a jolly good fellow every time he walks up. And he walks by the wheat guy's house and he happens to notice sneaky Pete. He's there at the dinner table and jobless Pete is smiling as well because he's just moved in for a month for free. Rent free. Owner goes home. Can you imagine going home to his wife saying, that weasel really got me. I thought Pete was the worst manager ever, but you know what? My opinion about him has changed. Turns out he's pretty good. He got me. Pete has set himself up nicely for the future with the few resources he had left. As a businessman, I can really appreciate what Pete did here. That's our illustration. Jesus gives us this as an illustration And now he gives us an observation. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. Jesus says, I commend to you guys, Sneaky Pete and people like him. You ought to adopt similar strategies. Now this may throw us, but Jesus is not commending Pete's dishonesty. He's commending his shrewdness, his ability to discern he better prepare for his future and to use all the means at his disposal. And Jesus says, as a child of light, you ought to be doing the same thing. Think about this. This is a surprising source of illumination for the Christian believer. Did you come here expecting today to take lessons from Jesus on how to live rightly and well in society by looking at unbelievers? We don't naturally think that, do we? Jesus is distinguishing, by the way, between unbelievers and believers here. Sons are children of this world and sons and children of light. It's two different camps. Everyone falls into one of these two camps. You're either a child of the world or you're a child of light. Who are the children of the world? Well, that's all of us by birth. We all bear the image of God, but like the two sons in Luke 15 We have found ourselves far from our Creator, and all we want is His stuff. We want nothing to do with Him. We're born in this world, we're just like Pete. We want to look out for ourselves. We aren't born into this world loving God. None of us are. We're by nature children of wrath, Ephesians 2. The Bible is very clear about this. 
You ever just start listening to all the language about people and good hearts? It drives me crazy sometimes. The Bible does not say we have good hearts. Romans 1, Paul's Magnus, his great letter about how to understand our faith begins with this. He's actually quoting Psalm 14, Psalm 53. It says this, There is none who does good. God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, any who seek after God. They have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Now this does not mean that every person you meet is as bad as they possibly can be. But what it does mean by nature, we are all corrupted to our cores and we don't seek for God. We don't have good hearts. Perhaps you're a not yet disciple of Jesus Christ. And you're thinking, that's right, Joel. I don't seek for God and I don't even believe in him. And I totally understand why you don't. Because the Bible knows us better than ourselves. And the Bible tells me that you are in darkness. And you can't see beyond the 80 some years that you have here on earth. But I'm here to tell you that God placed eternity in our hearts. And we all know this. This is why... I saw so many tears on Thursday at a funeral I officiated. We are made in the image of immortal God, but we have fallen from grace and now we die. And our hearts hurt when someone's presence becomes an absence. The good news, my friend, is that God feels this same heartbreak over you. Because mankind has been separated from him, he sent his one and only son in our flesh to save us by living the lives we failed to live as God looks down on us. Jesus lived the perfect life and he also died the death that we all deserve so that we can be raised up to new life just like him by simply believing in him. All of us, though we die, we can live by simply believing in what God has done. And if that bounces off you to no effect, it's because you're still in darkness. And I hope you'll talk with me afterwards because you don't want to stay there. Our God wants and will open the eyes of any who come to him asking for belief for eyes to see he loves to restore the sight of the blind and you will become a child of light you will be transferred out of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sins and you become one of those saints who get to share in the inheritance of the saints in light you find that in colossians 1 12 to 14 now, to you who are disciples and are children of life, of light, what do we think now about Jesus telling us to take lessons from unbelievers out there and how to invest wisely? Jesus is saying that we need to adopt similar strategies to worldly folks because there are folks who come up with amazing strategies so that they can flourish during their brief little moment here on earth. Think about some of them. Think about these rich men like Warren Buffett, Elon Musk. Think about the lengths that people will go to secure their future here on earth, even though they got a time limit. I was thinking about, do anybody remember the Monopoly game from McDonald's? You collect, you know, the different ones and you try to get enough matches, you know, you get the Monopoly and then you get the great prizes. I could never get the matches except for like a cheeseburger or something. I could never get any of those matches. You couldn't win. There's actually a reason for that. There's a guy from another company overseeing all the game pieces being made. His name was Jerome Jacobson. You ever heard about this story? Yeah. 
he found a way to actually separate out all of the award pieces. And then he went out and made friends with folks from all over the country who he gave these winning pieces to. They would then go out and claim the prize and they would split the profits. He made millions. Think about all the time and effort this guy had to do to amass this small fortune. I think he's pretty crafty. Now, if Jerome will scheme and work so hard so he can prosper for 80 years, and actually he didn't, he got busted. That's why I know the story. <laughs> Jesus says, how much more should we use our resources for our eternal future? Verse 9, and I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. I up front, I want to say Jesus is not saying that you can earn your salvation with your money. The Bible is very clear that salvation is by grace alone. But Jesus is saying that how you handle your stuff has eternal consequences. So you need to use your time, your talent, your treasure to help you towards your future destiny. So Joel, what does Jesus mean by unrighteous wealth? Well, it's not that your time, talents, and treasures are inherently evil. It does mean, though, that they are failing. They are part of a dying world. It's going away. But wonderfully, we can manage these failing goods and invest them in a way that pays off big time. We can make friends. Now, the tricky part is what is meant by these friends that receive us into eternal dwellings. Here's my best answer. There's a lot of debate on this, but here's my best answer. Remember the illustration I started with, the father who is praying for lost people? His son suggests that his money can be actually used to help them and answer to his prayers. Think about what is happening when we invest in Christian ministries that are getting the gospel out. Actually, a few weeks ago, you would have seen in our report that we're sending some money to Ukraine to help missionaries who are bringing the gospel there. That's your offering, by the way. There's a possibility that some folks in Ukraine are going to hear the gospel because of what you did there. And you're going to be in glory one day, and you're going to meet them. Who do you think they're going to invite into their home? In spiritual disciplines class, we're talking about evangelism in the coming weeks. How we invest our time into folks, sharing the gospel with them, learning how to do that, praying over them, investing inviting them to church so that they can become children of light like us. We've partnered with Retta. They're moving here in a month to help them support women who choose not to have abortions. How wonderful would it be in glory to have someone walk up to you and say, thanks to you, my mother kept me. I was born because you supported that ministry and I became a Christian. You want to check out my place? Last week, we had a fellow who walked in named Dion off the street. He needed a bus ticket home to L.A. We didn't know Dion. We prayed for him. We asked to meet with him the next day. We gave him a Bible and a bus ticket to head back to L.A. Oftentimes, I can't help but wonder when I run into somebody I'll never see again that we give a blessing to, is it just possible we're entertaining angels unaware? I'll confess, I don't know exactly what Luke 16.9 means, but it's something like that. We're to be using our time, our talents, and our treasure, all that God has given us, 
in light of heaven, in light of eternity. Jesus is asking us today. The simple question is, how are you behaving with your resources, what you have? Are we known as a people who will help others insofar as we're able? This is actually one of those texts that demands me to comment on tithing, which I rarely do. If you you join us for the first time, I'd rarely do this. But if you're a child of light, God has provided you with some unrighteous wealth. It's incumbent upon you to be a wise steward of what God has given. Don't hear me saying you need to give it to Heart City Church. God will take care of Heart City Church. I'm with Pete. I'm not going to beg. I'm telling you, though, that if God has set you on the right path, blessed you through Christian ministries, you better be looking to see where the kingdom of God is at work and be willing to invest in these things. Invest as God blessed you. Jesus then goes on to say in verse 10, One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. This is a wonderful word from the Lord Jesus for those of us who really don't have much. Some of us may not have much at all. If you have only a little time, a little talent, a little treasure, all you have to do is be faithful with it. Rejoice and be faithful with the little things and the small things. Don't say, well, when I get myself in a better position to serve, then then I'll be faithful. You're being dishonest. That's what Jesus is saying here. Faithfulness doesn't come when you finally arrive at a certain place in life. No, what you do with the little you have, you will do if you ever have a lot. And in fact, if you have only a little, I am convinced that your witness is far more powerful to a watching world when you have just the little and you invest that little bit you have. Mark Fogel and I, we were talking about the Reformation's discovery of the gospel. People did not have the gospel. In fact, most people in America don't have the gospel. Martha and Luther found out the gospel and the good news of what Christ has done. And he also discovered that faithful people were not only found in the monastery. You didn't have to be a nun or a monk. He says, no, actually, anybody can live a holy calling, whether you're a baker, a candlestick maker, whatever you do, you can actually, in that small little thing, you can glorify God in that holy calling. Mark told me a wonderful story about how he joyfully cleaned toilets after he got saved. He would be praising God while doing this menial work. And the bathroom floors, you could see your reflection in them. And his co-workers would come up and ask him, why are you so happy and grateful while doing this? How many toilet cleaners do you see doing that? Our earthly duties take on a whole new meaning. They actually become opportunities for us when we're living for the glory to come. I love what one commentator says. He wrote, The realism of these sayings is simply that life consists of a series of seemingly small opportunities. Most of us this week will not christen a ship, write a book, end a war, appoint a cabinet, dine with a queen, convert a nation, or be burned at the stake. Most likely, the week will present no more than a chance to give a cup of water, write a note, visit a nursing home, teach a Sunday school class, share a meal, tell a child a story, go to choir practice, and feed the neighbor's cat. Minus the call for me to show kindness to to cats. This is very encouraging. I've behaved for some time, Victor. (laughs) I haven't made any cat jokes in a while, so cut me some slack. (laughs) Jesus is saying, if we're faithful in the little things, here's the thing, you can be trusted with much. 
If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you've not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? Do you see Jesus' point here? I think these are questions we want to write down, put on a note card, memorize, meditate on. We all have a favorite Bible verses about trusting God, don't we? We have lots of them. And we can and we should. But we probably don't have this in front of us as often. Do you realize that God is trusting us? Do you hear what Jesus is asking? All your unrighteous wealth, you have, all of it, it actually belongs to another. Who's he talking about? God. Everything you have is from God. And God has entrusted you to be faithful with the little he's given. Children, you might be able to help us understand this because you get allowances and your parents might ask you to run errands. Maybe the parents give you money to go to the store and purchase something and they tell you to return home with the product and the change. What would happen if you failed at that task? Either you didn't use the money for the purpose it was used or you pocketed the change. Do you think it's likely you'll get an increase in your allowance? Do you think your parents are likely going to give you greater freedom to invest their money for you? I write this because Franz Schaeffer has an insight on what the true riches are in verse 11. It obviously has nothing to do with money. The true riches have nothing to do with money. He suggests that the true riches is the spiritual power that the church in our day is lacking. We don't see revival today because we're not faithful with our time, with our talents, with our treasure. The powers of heaven do not come down because we're not that interested in heaven and the world sees that. I think he's on to something. If you've sat under my preaching, I think you know that I believe the greatest idol in our day is consumerism. We don't even think about it because we're, we're in a consumer culture. Advertisers spend trillions each and every week telling you all the things you need to invest in. They promise that these products, these experiences, these upgrades, these brands, they will give you significance, purpose, identity, meaning. By the way, that's religious talk. This is why so many folks, they're more excited about going to a ball game than going to heaven. Church folks. Pastor Joel, thanks for the invite to go to church and be with Jesus. But it's 80 degrees, and I'm going to hang with my friends at the beach today. You know, it's, look at the weather outside. Pastor Joel, I really don't want to go to heaven because I have a big screen TV at home. We're all well-seasoned disciples of consumerism. That's my greatest challenge, I believe, as a pastor. It's going to be a challenge for us to more and more become disciples of Jesus if we don't begin to identify these things and then figure out how can we be investing our time, our treasure, our talents for God's kingdom and showing people that we are interested in heaven. That is the most glorious thing that we have before us. We need to look at our behaviors. We need to ask ourselves who our master is because that's where Jesus ends. That's where he concludes. No servant can serve two masters. For he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Let's be honest. Even the most sanctified of us here, we have moments where we believe we can serve God and money. 
R.C. Sproul corrects us. He says, Jesus doesn't say you shouldn't serve two masters. He says you can't. It's impossible. You can't serve God and your money. You have to ask yourself who you are going to serve. You and I will have a master, and ultimately we can only have one. The question for us as we leave here is, who is your master going to be this week going forward? Who is your master going to be? Charles Spurgeon once said, "Master is a, Money is a good servant, but a bad master. If we make money our God, it will rule us like the devil. Whether you have a lot of money and you hoard it, and right now you're watching the stock market just take your Roth account, it drives you crazy. Or whether you have hardly any money and as soon as you get any, you just got to burn it. You got to spend it. Either side, it doesn't matter. It's prodigal and Presbyterian, right? It's the same thing. Jesus agrees. In fact, in Luke's gospel, the only thing Jesus talks about more than himself is money. That's why I'm preaching this. Jesus has concern, and think about it, he's talking to a society that has nothing compared to what we do today. And Jesus is saying this because he says, you have great opportunity, great opportunity today and going forward to invest wisely. And he wants you to follow him. And he says, I want to be your master. And he is worthy of you spending all your time, all your talents, all your treasure on. What do you mean, Joel? Well, Jesus was and is God. Rich beyond what you and I can ever even begin to imagine here on this earth. But though he was rich, he became poor, that you and I might become eternally rich. He tells his disciples to choose him to be their master, and he is on his way to the cross right now in Luke 16. And we know there at the cross, Jesus is going to become a bloody mess. And he'll experience the wrath of God that we deserve for our sins, our rebellion against him. And he was willing to do it because he was paying the price to purchase you out of this world and into another. Is there any master who could ever love you better or more than Jesus Christ? My friends, you were bought with a price. So repent of your failures, seek forgiveness, and let's figure out how we can live more shrewdly in this world. There's great reward that awaits all those who are children of light. And who knows how many friends out there we could make that we might see later on. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending your Son, our Lord Jesus. And we thank you that ah, money doesn't have to be our master, that our worth is not based in what we own. Our worth is found in the blood of Christ that he shed for us to purchase us out of sin, out of misery, out of this world. I pray, Father, that you will give us new insights and wisdom and, and desire to live as those who are truly excited for the glory to come. Help us to invest what we have here and now that in fact many may see and ask questions of the reason for why we do live such a way. Help us to be shrewd. Help us to love you better. And help us, Father, to never forget the glory that you have showed us in our Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.